Hi, thank you so much for coming. Um, um, as Lori said, I was here 20 years ago in January, and um, I had a really formative visit here. I was at a crossroads in my life, and um, I was about 32, and I sort of had to start being an adult, and I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing, and I had two conversations, one each with two different visiting writers that really mattered to me. And, um, and I wrote one poem. <laughs> and I met a painter who is still a lifelong friend. So um, I think of this place fondly, and I'm so glad to be here as um, a visiting writer. Um, so thank you to Gary and Lori and Molly and April and all of you. So um, this is my book, Banana Palace. It was born yesterday. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, and uh, I would say that um, the primary thing that uh, drives this book, I tend to be an obsessive writer, so while I don't uh, work with projects in mind, my poems do revolve around um, particular, the narrow um, things. That was so inarticulate. The narrow things this book um, revolves around are um, anxiety about the future, apocalypse, uh, climate change, um, mutation, technology, social media, and appetite. Um, when I really got down into these poems, the commonalities in terms of why are we in the state we are in, it just really has to do with human appetite. And it's a big conundrum because we have to eat. Um, and in order to eat, we kill and we destroy. There's no way out of it. So how do we figure out how to, how to do this? Even my own cat, my beloved cat, does not fare well in these poems. At the same time, sometimes I think these poems are funny. So I hope you think they're funny. What can I say? So um, this, this first poem is called Across the Sea. And um, just as a um, uh, weigh in. Um, I was teaching Louise Glick's uh, Averno, which f uh, focuses on Persephone and Hades and Demeter, that myth. And we were having this conversation about the soul. And I said, well, what is the soul anyway? What is it? And then I said, oh my God, everybody like take out your phones and look up the definition of soul. And I just had this really weird experience of watching all my students take out their phones, looking at them really intensely, holding these phones above a physical book that featured um, a character from uh, from that precedes um, literacy. And, you know, because Persephone existed before anybody wrote her down as a mythic figure. So um, all of a sudden time just collapsed and did weird things. And this poem comes out of that. There's just a couple of references in it. Marconi, who is credited with inventing radio. And while he didn't invent it, he was a great... Um, extrapolator slash exploiter of the new science of radio. He also believed that if he just figured out how to make a, sens this, a sensitive enough machine, he would be able to hear every sound that had ever happened. Um, and so there's a mention here of um, Christ's call on the cross, Eli Lama Sabachthani, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and there's a mention here of a prophetess and a sibyl. They're one and the same. The sibyl of Kume from the Aeneid, who was someone you'd go and you'd say, oh my God, help me out. And she's like, okay. She'd be intoxicated. She'd write her fortunes on oak leaves, and then she'd throw them out of the cave, and you'd have to go run after them. Because <laughs> the wind might take them. So, across the sea. 
We used our texting machines to look up the definition of soul in the middle of class. Thumb joints at work above the stitched paper of actual books in which we'd been reading poetry about a prophetess, one of the human cave-bound time machines. She had traveled a long way through the four dimensions to be with us. From someone's mouth to someone's ear, someone's hand to tablet, papyrus, parchment, paper, the liquid crystal light of our computer screens. Liquid crystal light, they'd really called it that, the inventors at Marconi Wireless. See if you can hear anything, Mr. Kemp, Marconi had cried the day they sailed the letter S across the sea. I love the synesthesia of that. See if you can hear. They coax some radio waves to propel the alphabet through the air. Was that Marconi wishing? He was a liquid crystal light and not a break of bones that had to fear the future. A human-headed bird, the Egyptians said. A butterfly, an innermost a website I was afraid to enter. We want your soul.com. The students laughed and laughed. Soul adorning, soul afflicting, soul amazing. Soul and body lashings. They really called it that, the ropes they wound round oil skin to keep out sea and storm, our sailing men. Who sent the cheeriest message you could imagine to usher in the telegraphic age. Thanks, am well. The soul, it was an ellipse in white. It fizzed, their chaplain said, with God's CPR, breath of life. So they could travel through length and width and depth and time and man a ship, where someone in a small room would tap out a message to a far man on a far shore, and they would understand one another. He shared all roads and he braved all seas with me, all threats of the waves and skies, is what the hero says of his dead father. But it sounded like soul to me. Guide companion, captain of the ship of flesh I had to ride where I was a third thing in the closed grip of the body's vise. Marconi, he thought he'd hear the agony of Christ with a sensitive dial to help him see. He trawled the frequencies. For Eli Lama Sabachthani, no song lost. No impress of tongue and teeth that made a sound ever lost. If you had a receiver, a virgin, say, in a mountain crag, or a brain bot from the nano future, did it matter which? You'd have a house for a god's mouth, and it would message you your rescue. Rescued from what is what I'm trying to mean. Rescued from what? You have to fear the future more than you used to, which sounded like the soul waving a series of flags at me. We wanted arrival to be instant because we didn't want to be separate from what we loved. Wireless, weightless, and omniscient is how we refined our machines. We had a dream that we could smash the bands of matter and time and still be alive? Was that the soul wishing we would invent the body out of existence, so many of us now enthralled by doom? The students peer so deep into their handheld screens, they look like diviners. 
each one a scrying sibyl at the world's end. Scribbled on leaves thrown out of their caves and into the wind. The only part of the epic I make them read just after the crew is born ashore, but before the walk amongst the dead. The part between, where there's a body agonized by light and someone lost and a query. Okay, in this poem, I'm on a series of very strange talk shows. Someone said they thought this took place in a post-human future. It was not my intention, but I will take it. Talk show. I'm being interviewed on a television talk show. I'm an expert on breathing. So, the host croons, oxygen, how's that feel? Like having an alien in your chest, I say, and the live audience roars. Let's see you breathe, the host says. Go ahead, lung up. And I do, inhaling and exhaling to wild applause. It's billed as an in-depth two-part exclusive on retaining the use of all my limbs. Which do you like better, the host asks, twirling your hair or jiggling your foot, opening a door or kicking it closed? Which, he leans in, would you prefer, Parkinson's or polio? Flustered, I start to stand up, and he slaps his hands to his face, saying, she's standing up, ladies and gentlemen, she's standing up, and I freeze to mounting applause, half in and half out of my chair. It's another television talk show, and I'm the doctor of digestion, a metabolic whiz. They wheel me out to the stage perched on an old-timey stand-up scale. So, the host croons, food, how's that feel? Someone cues video, and we turn to montage, laparoscopic images of everything I've had to eat for the last three days. Carne autovada, the announcer booms, split pea soup. Each announcement meets with wild applause. When the video ends, I turn back to the host, but find you smoldering comfortably in the host's appointed chair. You lean forward, smiling. Your skull eye gleams. You stick your black-boned finger right down my throat. This poem, uh, if you've ever spent time in an urgent care, you will know that sometimes things do not move very urgently. So imagine that you're at an urgent care and it is taking a really long time to see a doctor and you are seated one seat over from someone who seems like they're not quite maybe in their right mind. You don't know why. It could be a fever. It might just be how they are. And you get to talking and it turns out this guy collects CAPTCHA. Do you guys know what CAPTCHA is? Um, this was more prevalent in early days of the internet, but you still have to do it sometimes where if you want to share an article or if you want to buy something, there's this little box and you have to retype the letters or the numbers, right? That's CAPTCHA. It's a Turing test, actually, for a server to make sure you're human and not a virus trying to infiltrate um, the server. In the earlier days of the internet, they liked to do weird phrases, um, which pepper, are peppered throughout um, this uh, poem. So this crazy guy likes to um, collect CAPTCHA, and you're waiting to see a doctor, and you're chatting. In the meantime, a lunar eclipse is about to happen, and oh, the farmer's almanac gets uh, some quoting deep in, because you're bored. Okay, urgent care. Also, I cuss a lot in, in these poems. I hope no one will be offended. Yes! Yes! Okay. Urgent care. 
having to make eye contact with the economy. A ball cap that says, in dog ears, I'm dead. <laughs> the moon will turn blood red and then disappear for a while, the TV enthused. Hunched over an anatomy textbook, a student traces a heart over another heart, lunar eclipse. In the bathroom, crammed graffiti, fuck the heart, you know, like. He collected CAPTCHA, one seat over, Mr. Feverish, mange denied. Like puzzling Sabbath or street pupas, we shared some recent typos. I mediated his, my tiny bots of stimulation. He loved the smudged and swoony words that proved him human. Not a machine trying to infiltrate the servers of the New York Times from which he launched gad shakes or hefty llama, obits and exposés, some recipes, a digital pic of someone else's black disaster. He lobbed links at both of his father's step and bio, a few former lovers, a high school coach, a college chum, some people from where I used to work. So much info, we both agreed. The umbra, the TV explained, shadow the earth was about to make. Bless you. And if during the parenthesis they felt a strange uneasiness, firing rifles and clanging copper pots to rescue the threatened, so benighted and hopelessly lost, their eyes to the errors, Moon lore, farmer's almanac, waiting room, hour two. Urgent care, that was pretty multivalent. As in, we really need you to take care of this. We really need you to care for this to care about this. We really need you to peer through the clinic storefront window on alert for the ballyhooed moon. And there it was, reddening in its black sock, deep in the middle of the hour of someone's nutso tinsel talk on splendor. My fevered friend, describing the knocked out flesh, each of our heads fitting like a flash drive into the port of a healer's hands. This poem, um, what is it called when you come, when, like when it says like a murder of crows or, um, you know, ugh, what's the name? You guys know what I'm talking about? What are some other versions of murder of crows, a uh, rook of something, uh, where these weird names they have for collectives? So I made up one, a debris field of apocalypticians. What is it? Yeah, gaggle of geese. Yeah, no. Do you got any, Michael? No. All right. Gaggle of geese. All right. Well, anyway, um, I made up one. It's a debris field of apocalypticians, um, which is the title. And then um, there's a word in here, umwelt. It's German, and it means, um, in, in Gestalt psychology, it means your sort of general external environment. Um, so that's mentioned in here. And so the poem is a debris field of apocalypticians, a murder of crows. The fact of suffering is not a question of justice. Belief in God is not a disease. Our father projections met and disaster ensued. Earth is our only time machine. Our mother projections met and disaster ensued. 
Everyone is sick from what we made. He wanted you to ask him how he felt. He didn't give a shit about your umwelt. But your heartburn, biome, phone bills, research, your temperature, heartbreak, dust mites, checkbook, your live ones, loved ones, languishing spider mums, they just needed some shit to make them grow. The fact of suffering is not a question of justice. Everyone is sick from what we made. You watched monks change sand into a palace of time, wheeled through an age of unpardonable crimes. Okay. This poem frightens me. I'm going to read it to you. It's good to read things you're, you're afraid of. And the reason I'm afraid of it is because I never know if it works. These are just snippets. Um, snippets of homeless people saying things that feel oracular that I experienced. Um, snippets of a day. Um, trying to figure out how to put these snippets together was the biggest um, compositional problem. It took the longest to write in this book. It was one of the last ones I finished. Um, it's called En Route, and it, from morning to dream. So you're just kind of following someone as they're going through their day from morning to night to dream. Um, the Sybil of Kume sort of makes another appearance. Um, there's the phrase mon semblable mon frere, which means my likeness, my brother, which is from Baudelaire and then is offered to us through Eliot's The Wasteland. And there's also a quote from Popular Culture in Ancient Rome, which is a great book. Man, you should read it. Okay, en route. One, morning drizzle, chicken little. Man in self-argument crossing the street. You better wash your mouth out with soap. No, you better. Umbrellas, 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 umbrellas. Another man ventured through thickening air. Office hours. You changed your religious affiliation to food. Then bandages. Then orgiast, foxtrot, wrenchin, tandoori. D played byline for 72 points. D played canoodle for 96 points. D played enablers for 65 points. Scrabble? Student head through the doorway. Did he think you'd be plotting against carnage? Critique. Mandated interactions with chairs, your corporation of atoms, its forced mergers with air and food. Was it any wonder that extending a hand meant tears, you said, tapping the stanza? Don't they often accompany heart? Someone else's cake. She frowned off the sugared flour. Asked if they used butter to beat the batter. Did it suffer from nuts or eggs or fruit? She dug her thumb into the bother. Sixth and Kume. Some aftermath camped atop a subway grate, some boxed and muttering, perpetually hungry and insane. You look like you want me, but you don't, she spat in disgust. Go make technology happy. That happened 15 years ago, before everybody had phones. Selfie. Lips pursed, 
right index finger tipping the chin, the look of, um. <laughs> Happy hour. A feeling in your body as if you were flinging up handfuls of coins, your body rushing back into your arms. I don't know, I wanted it to be more, he eddied his fingers, punctuated stars. Going under. You cannot get ready, her vinyl purse. You cannot get ready for God. You cannot get ready, her stout legs, her Sunday-gloved grip on the hour. Shoes, black, patent, leather, low, pumps. Tapping, you cannot get ready. She dug into the tunneling train, a wide berth. For blessing you and judging you how you weren't ready for God. Serenely deeming you lost. You watched her purse swing under the East River. A book before bed. Despite this expense, some epitaphs were resolutely nihilist. Into nothing, from nothing, how quickly we go. While non-fui-fui, non-sum, non-kuro, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care, was so common that it was often abbreviated to simply NFFNSNC. TTFN, ta-ta for now. Mon semblable, mon frere. Inexplicable clown wig lurching away with a hall swing of coats. All right, that's the scary poem. Oh my God, we're halfway through this reading. So I'm going to read the title poem. It's called Banana Palace. And um, uh, for context, what I'll tell you is um, one day I was scrolling through Facebook and, you know, I'm just kind of, I don't know what I was doing, waiting for something. And all of a sudden I saw this thing and I went, oh my God, what is that? Has that, has that ever happened to you on social media where you just kind of, what? Right? And I really wanted to write about this thing, which I'm not going to tell you what it is because that's part of what's going on in the poem, but I really wanted to write about this thing. And then I was like, I don't know how to write about this thing without writing about Facebook, which seems a very dismal subject for poetry. So I just was like, muse, help me out. I don't really know, I don't know how to do this. Um, so I hope you offer me a solution because I really want to write about this thing. And about a year later, um, I was thinking about this again and, and I was like, all right, all right, you're gonna have to write about Facebook. So. Why would anyone want to know about Facebook? Um, why would you tell anyone about Facebook? And I was like, I guess I would only tell someone about Facebook if they didn't know what it was. Well, who wouldn't know what Facebook is? Someone from the post-apocalyptic future, obviously. <laughs> obviously. So um, this poem, it sort of begins in the present moment, but then it kind of slides into this weird um, thing of like trying to describe to a person from a post-apocalyptic future who has not known our civilization, and there's probably no electricity or anything, the experience of finding this image and what Facebook is. Um, so I think that is enough of context. And then towards the end of the poem, you will find out what it is I saw. And then I will tell you a link where you could actually go look at it. Too bad we don't have a screen, you know? Okay, Banana Palace. I want you to know how it felt to hold it deep in the well of my eye. 
You, future person, star of one of my complicated dooms. This one's called Back to the Dark. Scene one, death stampedes through the server cities. Somehow we all end up living in caves, foraging in civic ruin. Banana Palace. The last of the last of my kind who can read, breathes it hot into your doom-rhymed ear. She's a dowser of spine-broken books and loose paper. The rest of your famishing band thinks mad. Mine was the era of spending your time in town squares made out of air. You invented a face and moved it around, visited briefly with other faces. Thus we streamed down lit screens, sharing pictures of animals looking ridiculous. Trading portals to shoes, love, songs, news, somebody's latest rabid cause, bosses, gluten, bacon, God. <laughs> information about information was the pollen we deposited, while in the real fields, bees starved. Into this noise sailed Banana Palace. It was a mothership of gold, shining out between happy B-Day, Katie, and a photo of someone's broken toe. Like luminous pillows cocked on a hinge, like a house with a heavy lid, a round house of platelets and honey. It was open, like a box that holds a ring, and inside where the ring would be. I think about you a lot, future person. How you will need all the books that were ever read when the screens and wires go dumb. Whatever you haven't used for kindling or bedding. Whatever made it through the fuck cluster of bombs we launched accidentally. At the end of the era of feeling like no one was doing a thing about our complicated dooms. Helpless and braced, we sat in dark spaces submerged in pools of projected images, trying to disappear into light. Light. There was so much light. It was hard to sleep. Anyway, Banana Palace. Even now when I say it, symbols shiver out in spheres. It starts to turn its yellow gears and opens like a clam revealing a fetal curl on its temple floor, bagged and sleeping. A white cocoon under lit strings that stretch from floor to ceiling. A harp made of glass, incubating a covered pearl. We broke the world you're living in, future person. Maybe this was always our end, to break the jungles, to get at the sugar, leave behind a waste of cane. There came a time I couldn't look at trees without feeling elegiac, as if nature were already over, if you know what I mean. It was the most glorious thing I had ever seen. Cross-section of a banana under a microscope, the caption read. I hunched around my little screen, sharing a fruit no one could eat. It's a really beautiful image. You can't eat it. So what good is it? 
Okay, now we enter the world of appetite. This is a poem about my cat, poor Murray. Okay. Murray, my feed me, caterwauler. A meat sack with another meat sack for a pet. I tended hunger. His and mine, the baby moles he'd bat to death, the low-slung hunt near the sink for chicken grease, my teacher beast. He liked it raw or cooked or canned or kibbled. He'd clip a claw to my lower lip if I was asleep so that I'd pad to the kitchen and slop his bowl with seafood medley or chicken beef. I'd grab him up, squeeze so tight I thought I'd pop, croon silly, 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 and watch his eyes close down to slits. I tended hunger. It was on my mind a lot as I watched the climate curl and bang. Were you watching too, wondering if you'd hesitate to eat your cat in the new extreme of flood and flame? I had a brute hypochondria about the future's body. All around me, summer burst its sack of seeds and trumpet horns of purple-blue. I loved so much I cut them once to bring inside, where they promptly died. And thus I knew, no matter how much I loved the world, to hunger was to be a destroyer. Murray comes back later. And it's not good. Okay. So this poem is called The Living Teaching. Um, so what you would need to know is that um, in uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice, uh, one of the central visual visualization meditations you do is um, you build a refuge tree. The refuge tree is like a spiritual family tree. You envision all of your spiritual teachers, the line of teachers that goes all the way back to one of the Buddhas. Um, and you do it as a, as, a, as a place in which to take refuge is the way I think about it. So as I was um, thinking about this, you know, you begin the meditation with clear blue sky and then you are supposed to see or feel or somehow uh, encounter, contact your primary mentor. And every time I did this, my father just came up, which I was like, what? Um, and so I started to think about how did my father mentor me. And um, this is the poem. He was an untreated manic depressive. He was a rager. He was fun. He was frightening. Um, he was great to eat with. Um, and he liked to eat. So this poem is um, the living teaching. And the you is my father. You wanted to be a butcher, but they made you be a lawyer. You brought home presents when it was nobody's birthday. Smashed platters of meat she cut against the grain. Were a kind of portable shrine. I was supposed to cultivate a field of bliss, then return to my ordinary mind. You burned the files and moved the office made your children fear a different school, liked your butter hard and your candy frozen, were a kind of diamond drill drilling a hole right through my skull, quality sleep late November. What did it mean, field of bliss? A sky alive with your greatest mentor. I wore your shoes big as boats flopped through the house, while you made garlic eggs with garlic salt, what represents the living teaching? Sausages on toasted rye with a pickle and a smother of cheese and frosting right out of the can without the cake. 
You ruled with a knife in one hand and a fork in the other. You raged at my stony mother while I banged from my high chair, waving the bloodied bone of something slaughtered. I was a butcher's daughter. So all hail to me, Osgurgi's vortex mouth. I gap my craw and the bakeries of the city's fall. I stomp the docks, spew out a bullet stream of oyster shells. I'll drain the seas, the silos on every farm, the rice from the paddy fields, the fruit from all the orchard trees, and then I'll eat the trees. I'll eat with money and I'll eat with my teeth until the rocks and the mountains curl and my blood sings. I'm such a good girl to eat the world. Two more. I keep a garden. I love hollyhocks. Do you guys know what hollyhocks are? Yeah. They're actually one of the most ancient flowers in the world. They're like dinosaur flowers. They grow really tall and they have these really bright, big flowers. And when they start to come up, they come up and then there's this really tight crown of buds and it will just get taller and taller and taller. So my hollyhocks had reached this, the, the tight bud phase and then I came out one morning and something had just gone. Totally. Totally. I was so pissed. And then I thought, well, I really hope you get to turn into whatever you're supposed to turn into, little larva, or else this was a waste. So this is my poem to the little larva, and then it kind of becomes a, a, a little meditation on reincarnation. The point of the needle. Since you got to behead each hollyhock crown with your round guillotine of a mouth, I hope you get to spin inside your paper house. Emerge noctuidae, owlet moth, laying your eggs in leaves at night. That you might finish your stitch, replicate yourself in time so you are always present. Each egg a deposit, an echo pearl of you along time's string. That my soul might be allowed to flourish make a success of threading flesh to participate again in time on long arcs between sets of plunge, even though it hurt to be born and die. It loved to ride the point of the needle. It's very, this is my dramatic drinking of water. Thank you. Thank you. It's the best part of this reading. Um, so this last poem is the last poem in the book. And I guess what you should imagine is the person who was telling the other person about Facebook has, is coming back in this poem. And um, I really wanted to write an apocalypse poem as we were heading towards 2012. And I didn't know how to do that either. And, but I really wanted to. And, and like in a sci-fi-y way, um, I'm a sucker for dystopias. Um, so um, I thought, well, if you really did survive an, an apocalypse, which is highly unlikely, I am over 50, I am overweight, I have no skills except poetry. The only way this is going to work is if they absorb me as like shaman crone woman and let me be the dispenser of wisdom. This is the only way I will survive this scenario. So, um, and carry me around on a litter. Yes? <laughs> it might be good. So, um, so I thought, well, if I really did survive, what would I be doing? F trying to eat, 
Uh, what else would I be doing? Trying not to be eaten, um, finding shelter. Okay, let's say you have a moment where those things are taken care of uh, for, for a little while. What would you be doing? And I thought I would probably be thinking about all of the things from the old civilization that I missed. And as I started to make this list in my head, a lot of it was food. <laughs> so, um, so in this poem, you can just imagine that I'm kind of crazed in a cave thinking about how I ended up crazed in a cave and also thinking about um, what I missed at the end of my hours. Here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, 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 cricket, pulse. The Katie Diddick, tick, and then a pause, tick, and then a pause in greening trees. Tales of a gratitude for water, the hollyhock's trumpet, yes, tenderness, her glove and hoe. Her bad trip, love, grief, her medic tent talking me down, kissed fissures in the world's despair, what I'd loved. Alive for a while, a day called rip and brood, a day called glorious hour, the long hunt and the worm found in the battered petunias. Every morning in summer, that last summer, before the bees collapsed and the seas rose up to say, fuck you. Perplexed by how it hadn't been unfailingly compatible, our being numerous. How half the time we couldn't see the shapes we were supposed to make made grave our disasters. A god's glass bearing down to burn the wheat crop. To keep time alive inside a tomato, splicing fish into fruit. Some wanted to defy limitation. Were offered famine, bric-a-brac townships, virtual cities where you could stand in market aisles still expecting cherries. His rhythms were your rhythms, Murray the cat. Sleeping adieu. Draped your length from hip to knee like a scabbard. Unsheathed his yawn. Tortured finches for breakfast. Yowled and yowled round the ravaged bowl till you fed him chicken from your own plate. Another mouth, purling the wheel of appetite, coveting a bloody mash to keep it going. Such a dumb rondo. Who invented it? Eating to live, to kill, to eat. Even cat on a stick when fields failed. No crave for rain against the blasted scape, nor love, nor God at the end of my hours, but garlic and butter, a splash of cognac, steak frite. And when soil burned and order failed and dogs then people starved and char, I remembered an extraordinary piece. The privilege of being left alone with bread to eat and famous butter the chefs use. The venues of white sleep, cannabis and clonopin. The soma goods of art. And when my back went up against a blackened wall for rumored beans and dented cans, I forgot my body. Became a future remembering how it got that way, some blah, 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 about hoarding rivers and hiding gold. We died in droves. We killed each other and we killed ourselves until our bones wore out their plastic shrouds. I couldn't quite quit some ideas. Trees and chocolate. I couldn't stop yammering over the devastated earth, pining for nachos, prescription drugs and a hint of spring, though I could see the new desert, its bumper crop of bone and brick from shipwrecked cities, where now the sons and daughters of someone tough are on the hunt for rat, 
The scent of meat, however mean, and a root sending an antenna up to consider greening. What poems built their houses for, once in a blinded age, teaching us the forms we felt in rescue. Hoarded up scraps whirling around my cave, trying to conjure peaches. Thank you.